0: The court, that cool. Good morning. Please be seated. In the case of um, Attorney General of Ontario et al. against Mike Restoul et al. and between Attorney General of Ontario et al. against Chief and Council of Red Rock First Nation on behalf of the Red Rock First Nation Band of Indians et al. For the intervener, Attorney General of New Brunswick, Josh J.B. McCalman KC, Billy Campbell. For the intervener Big Tigong Nishnabeg First Nation, Spencer Bass. For the intervener, Atskimamek Sheng Anishinaabek Ryan Lake and Genevieve Boulet. For the intervener, Time Ogashma Anishinaabe and Temagami First Nation, Bruce, T- Bruce McIver and Kate Gunn. For the intervener, Namegusis Agirgon Ojibwe Nation, Julian N. Falconer, and Jeremy Greenberg. For the intervener, Afwe River First Nation, Kajia Aizdez Rampel. For the intervener, Federation of Sovereign Indigenous Nations, Ron S. Morris and Geneviève Boulet. For the intervener, Manitoba, Kiwatinawi, Okimakanak, Inc., Michael Jurch, and Jessica Barlow. For the intervener, Carrie, the Kettle Nakoda Nation, Genevieve Boulet and Ryan Lake. For the intervener, Assembly of Manitoba Chiefs, Carly Fox. For the intervener, West Moberly First Nations, Cathy I. Duke and uh, Kia uh, Mogerman. For the intervener, Atabasca Tribal Council Limited, Glenn K. Epp, and Eric L. Pentland. For the intervener, tsa uh, First Nation, John W. Gales. For the intervener, Kitas Kino, now Tri- Tribal Council, Kevin Hill, and Jesse uh, Abel. For the interveners, Sajin Ojibwe Nation, Krista Christ- Nerland, Kathy Gurgis and Graham Cook. For the intervener, Gracie Narrows First Nation, Adrienne Telford and Jackie Esmon. For the interveners, Union of British Columbia Indian Chiefs, Et al. Peter Millard and Erica Stahl. For intervener, Anishinabek Nation, Patricia Lawrence and Samantha Dawson. For the intervener Indigenous Bar Association in Canada. Alexandria Winterburn and Jason T. Madden for the intervener, Assembly of First Nations Stuart Watke and Adam Williamson. Josh Mickleman.
1: morning Chief Justice, Justices. The Attorney General for New Brunswick has two submissions. As a result of the submissions yesterday, we reversed the order of our submissions from how they are presented in our factum. Our first submission is that declaratory relief is the usual and appropriate remedy for securing existing Aboriginal rights. If this court is to determine that a departure from the declaratory relief may be appropriate in certain circumstances, treaty partners would benefit from an analytical framework for determining when such a departure may be ordered. Our second submission is The framework established in Marshall for historical treaty interpretation that is focused on reconciling the intent of the parties at the time of the treaty provides a precise transparent and predictable framework for historical treaty interpretation to our first submission declaratory relief is the primary remedy for securing existing aboriginal rights the rationale underpinning declaratory relief is well developed and canadian courts have consistently recognized That the judicial, legislative, and executive branches of government each have a unique role in advancing reconciliation. Mr. McKellman, can I
2: stop stop you and ask you to focus? I won't won't hijack your pleading, but Canada yesterday suggested that there was a possibility of a remedy beyond declaration and without averting directly to this separation of powers argument if you could take into account the position presented by Canada yesterday in your
1: in your remarks yes thank you very much uh, justice Um, we do submit that if there is going to be a departure from the judicial norm that the circumstances be limited such that a, a deviation is limited and carefully circumscribed in those situations which declaratory relief would be meaningless uh, uh, or circumstances where the court has, due to the crown's failure to comply with a prior declaration, lost confidence in the crown's ability to act honorably. Uh, the attorney general for New Brunswick su- suggests that this proposed framework maintains the balance between the respective roles played by the crown and the judiciary in the reconciliation process. Can I ask you le- to?
3: Can I just stop you and ask you to expand uh, about uh, that the declaration would be meaningless and expand on that, please?
1: Thank you very much uh, Justice Uh, in a case where the uh, treaty promise related to something that is impossible to fulfill today uh, for instance if it was for a designated area of land that no longer exists uh, as a result of flooding or or something along those lines and the second circumstance that we outline are those circumstances where the Crown has failed to comply with a prior declaration and in the Attorney General's submissions the importance of the declaration, it emphasizes the role of the Crown that it must and it has a duty to advance reconciliation following a declaration by meaningfully engaging with a treaty partner, repairing the relationship, and addressing the substance of the declaration. Uh, it is the Attorney General's submission for New Brunswick that declarations provide the Crown with an opportunity to act on the direction of the court while taking into account those broader societal interests that may not have been before the court in the case at issue. Subject to any further questions, we'll move to our second submission. Reconciliation of Indigenous and non-Indigenous Canadians is the grand purpose of Section 35. Reconciliation underpins the doctrine of the honour of the Crown and is best achieved through meaningful negotiations between treaty partners rather than contentious litigation. Reconciliation in historical treaty interpretation is properly focused at the intent of the parties at the time the treaty was made and is not a contemporary assessment of what reconciliation means. Once established, an Aboriginal treaty right has the full protection of 35, and the assessment of what must be done to protect the established right then involves a contemporary assessment of reconciliation of the historical right with its modern expression. There is a difference between reconciliation as the fundamental objective of modern law of Aboriginal treaty rights and the analysis of reconciling the interest of treaty partners at the time the treaty was made this case presents an opportunity and an important opportunity for this court to reaffirm the martial framework for historical treaty interpretation affirm the important role of reconciliation in informing the objective and purpose of treaty making while not displacing the determination of the party's common intention at the time the treaty was signed and not displacing the role of the treaty partners themselves in determining what reconciliation means in the modern context in conclusion the attorney general of new brunswick is grateful for the court's continued guidance and submits that this case presents an opportunity for the court to provide clarity on the important role of declaratory relief and the continued applicability of the Marshall Framework. Thank you very much. Thank you.
0: Mr. Bass.
4: Chief Justice, Justices, on behalf of the intervener Dog Anishinaabeg First Nation, I will address my submissions this morning to a single issue, and that's the honor of the Crown. Specifically, It is my submission that the honour of the Crown grounds legally enforceable obligations, that courts in this country can review Crown conduct for adherence to those obligations, and they must be able to provide effective remedies to restore the Crown's honour beyond merely declaratory relief. And this is true despite the fact that some Crown actions may also involve broader policy considerations. at the outset, I wish to address one issue that was raised yesterday by Council for Ontario, as well as in questions by Justices Roe and Jamal. Now, Ontario takes the position that declaratory relief here is required to clarify the party's obligations under the treaties, and then the Crown should be given wide latitude to go out and operationalize that declaration. But this position from Ontario is based on an impoverished view of the honour of the Crown. In accordance with that doctrine, the Crown is presumed to always intend to fulfill its treaty obligations. And thus, the Crown always knew what its obligations were under the treaties. It was not unaware of what it agreed to in 1850. It was there at the Treaty Council. The issue was not that the Crown was uncertain of what its obligations uh, were,
5: sir, sir, but... I put Sir, I put it to you, this is the third level of court after uh, months of testimony, after uh, many interventions, after mountains of paper, and we're still trying to ascertain what the proper interpretation of the treaty is, the notion that this was obvious on its face is difficult for me to accept.
4: Well, Justice Roe, my submission is not necessarily that it's obvious on its face, but the issue here is not that the the Crown was uncertain what its obligations were, but as the trial judge found, it promptly forgot or neglected those promises. And it's that issue that has brought us here today. And the Crown has had over 170 years to diligently adhere to its obligations and failure to act honorably over such a prolonged period of time must have consequences. Isn't
6: the relevant question how the Crown responds or the Crowns respond to a declaration once made? Uh, Because the the honor of the Crown isn't to be used as a a form of punishment. Uh, It is to be used uh, to guide negotiations, to to ensure that the Crown acts honorably. We now have declarations and we're now gonna be issuing uh, as a final court, whatever declaration or whatever remedy But at the end of the day, the question is how the the Crown responds to an order of the court, not to uh, its own. The parties have been at odds as to the interpretation for a long time.
7: Well,
4: Justice Jamal, I would respond that after 150 years of inaction on the part of the Crown, the courts must be able to step in and ensure that the Crown's honour is restored.
6: And And I think Mr. Griffin acknowledged yesterday the Crown hadn't acted honourably. I think he acknowledged that quite plainly. And and
4: in in the face of that acknowledgement, the the court must have power to ensure that the Crown's honour is restored and the remedy will not look the same in every case. Because of the breadth of the honour of the Crown, the Crown can act dishonourably in innumerable ways. And it's for that reason that the courts need to maintain flexibility in choosing the appropriate remedy now i would also submit that the honor of the crown is far more robust than ontario admits and it enables the courts to assess crown conduct and provide meaningful remedies where the crown falls short and that the crown's broad public policy role does not absolve it of its solemn obligations to indigenous peoples and that's well established in this court's jurisprudence whether it's in the context of the sui generis fiduciary duty or in the context of the duty to consult and accommodate, such as this court held, applied to the taking up clause in Treaty 8 in Mikasukri in 2005. Now, in closing, I wish to emphasize that there are many indigenous groups in this country who are not currently parties to treaties with the Crown. And some of these groups may be considering adhering to those treaties. And they will be watching this court's decision very closely because they will be considering what incentive they have to enter into treaty relationships if they will have no assurance that they can call upon the courts to assist them if and when the Crown fails to adhere to its promises. And if the Crown can hide behind its broad public policy role, treaty promises will truly be empty shells and that would be a tremendous step backwards from reconciliation. Thank you very much. Thank you. Miigwech.
0: Thank you. Ryan Lake.
8: Good morning, Chief Justice, Justices. I appear on behalf of Atikmikshing Anishinaabek. Atikmikshing is one of the First Nations who are the modern day beneficiaries of the Robinson Huron Treaty, and who are collectively represented by the respondents, Ristula Tal, in the within appeal. Atikmikshing is also here today in respect of its treaty reservation boundary claim, an action currently proceeding before the Ontario Superior Court. To assist this Honorable Court with its determination of the issues on appeal, which will impact upon Atikameksheng's reservation boundary claim, Atikameksheng presents two key arguments. Number one, the interpretation and implementation of the promises in the Robinson treaties are inextricably intertwined as a result of the ongoing nature of the promises. The honor of the crown must always be considered in the interpretation of treaties. The honor of the crown assists in determining a breach of treaty, or as in the present case, and the reservation boundary case, whether there is a positive obligation of the Crown to diligently implement a treaty obligation where its failure to do so would deny the realization, maintenance or protection of a treaty promise. Number two, a treaty claim cannot be barred by provincial statutory limitation periods. Chief Justice, Justice's interpretation and implementation of the Robinson treaties are inextricably intertwined Atikamekshing submits that although the concepts of treaty interpretation and implementation are distinct, they are necessarily intertwined as a result of the continuous nature of the treaty promises and the eternal nature of the treaty relationship. Interpretation is relevant to the substance of the promise, and implementation concerns the realization of the promise. The Crown ought to take positive steps and act decisively to implement the purpose and intent of the treaty diligently. Chief Justice, Justices, the Crown instantly received what it was promised by the treaty when it took those Anishinaabek lands, other than those areas accepted by the reservation schedule. However, the promise to the Anishinaabek was dependent on the Crown's positive and ongoing implementation of its reciprocal promises. In particular, the Crown failed to maintain and protect its promises to Etikmaksim respecting, one, annual payments and the value thereof, to its reservation of land. These failures are a failure of the duty of diligent implementation. Chief Justice, Justices, the annuities augmentation clause required ongoing performance and diligent implementation. A key part of the treaty promise was the Crown's undertaking to review whether, when and by how much the annuity ought to be augmented from time to time. Unless the Crown took tangible steps to do so at reasonable intervals, it cannot be said to have diligently implemented the promise. Without diligent implementation, the promise is unsatisfied. A submits that the promise to provide augmented annual payments requires ongoing performance on the part of the Crown, and the doctrine of the honour of the Crown is the lens by which the analysis of the interpretation and implementation of this promise can be determined. Properly understood, the Crown is required to substantively perform its obligations. Diligently implement and realize the relevant treaty promise and is presumed to always act honorably in so doing this approach properly applies to the presumption that the honor of the crown is always at stake and the crown always intends to fulfill its promises chief justice justices the setting aside of reservation lands for the exclusive use and benefit of a first nation is an ongoing obligation. The written text of the Robinson-Huron Treaty provided for a cession of lands as described in the treaty except the reservations set forth in the schedule. Atikmuxing submits that when properly understood and when interpreted based on the principles of the honour of the crown the failure to implement this treaty promise dutifully and diligently can establish a breach of treaty and a corresponding breach of fiduciary duty. This diligence is, me- is the measure by which we can assess whether a breach has occurred and not an independent cause of action. Protection of these reservation lands as described in the schedule of reservations for the exclusive use and benefit of atikameka included the Honorable Conduct of the Crown in implementation, protection, and maintenance of that promise from non-Indigenous encroachment and interference. Our final submission relates to the inapplicability of provincial imitation statutes. The decisions of this court, including the seminal case of Sparrow, are clear that a strict test is required for any extinguishment of treaty or Aboriginal rights and that the federal parliament must demonstrate a clear and plain intention to do so. Provinces have never had the constitutional authority to extinguish Aboriginal or treaty rights. Ontario's limitation statutes cannot and do not apply to treaty claims. The Ontario Court of Appeal was correct in holding unanimously that because of the sui generis nature of treaties, claims arising out of them are not subject by analogy to limitation periods related to contracts, specialties or accounting. Thank you. Thank you very much.
0: Bruce McIver.
7: Justices, in 1973, Teme, Agama, and Nishinabe filed a caution over their lands. That led to the 1984 Bear Island trial decision from Justice St- 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 Steele. It also led to the 1991 decision from this court in Bear I- Island. Now, 50 years later, homogamy is back with a caution. It's a caution about what can happen when as part of a court process, the indigenous perspective is ignored or undervalued. It's a caution about what can happen when the crown is left to its own discretion to honorably implement treaties. It's important for the court to be aware that tomogamy of all the interveners here is the only party intervener at stage three on the Robinson Huron trial. They are also not a part of any announced proposed settlement with the Robinson Huron plaintiffs. In fact, The Crown has not even made them an offer to settle. They are still waiting for the graciousness of the Crown to descend. The Bear Island decision was the first major court interpretation of the Robinson-Huron Treaty. My client's position was at that time and has always been that their perspective was undervalued and ignored. When it reached this court in 1991, the court found, confirmed that tomogamy had been adhered to the treaty. The court also said that the promises were outstanding and had not been fulfilled and were currently the subject of negotiations. Tomogamy is still waiting for negotiated settlement. Yesterday we heard much about the written text of the treaty versus the context around the treaty. Ontario referred to the possibility of the context overwhelming the treaty. Justice Rowe referred to the possibility that if the context is privileged the treaty goes puff. We think it's important to keep in mind what this court said in Marshall, where the court said at paragraph 20, it would be an error to presume that the written document is the treaty. That is the Crown's perspective. That is not the indigenous perspective. And their perspective is not simply context. On the standard of review, as outlined, our position is that, assuming the trial judge properly applies treaty interpretation principles, including respect for the Indigenous perspective, the trial judge's decision is owed def, def, of deference in regard to his or her characterization of well, I think the you might be misinterpreting
6: promises. Marshall, because that's not my understanding of Marshall. Uh, what Marshall was about as I recall was about whether the truck house clause was the entirety of the treaty or whether there was also a right to fish or hunt to bring things to the truck house and that was what Justice Binney said that the tr- truck house would have been as I recall an empty shell of a promise if it didn't include the right to gather for a moderate livelihood So it wasn't that the, it wasn't to denigrate the importance of a treaty It was just in the particular context of that case that the treaty wasn't the entirety of the promise. Thank you,
7: Justice. The court has heard much discussion of the need for space and time to give effect to declarations. The court should keep in mind that this is a different situation because this is an issue where it's not simply forward looking, such as in Manitoba Métis or the recent Blueberry River Decision. This is a situation where it is retrospective, where there has been an, a failure to fulfill these treaty promises for over 150 years. Our position on the remedies is that in that situation, concrete rem- remedies are both necessary and required. Those are our submissions.
0: Thank you very much. Julian uh, Faulkner.
9: Good morning, Justices. Uh, I, along with my colleague, Jeremy Greenberg, have the honor of uh, representing Nami agusis Egegin, uh, the chief and uh, band manager, Chief Helen Pavla, and Kyle McLaurin are in the body of the court this morning. Respectfully, uh, history is an important lesson And uh, the history in this case is the subject of findings by Justice Hennessy. I respectfully refer the court to uh, her uh, findings in the Stage 1 proceedings at Paragraphs 494 and 495. Clear statements about seriously undermining the duty of honour. Clear statements about the Crown waiting without a word for over a century. In the stage one reasons, she further observes the Crown exercised their discretion and refused to increase annuities. The Crown would have provided or recorded those reasons which are reviewable, they don't exist. The Court of Appeal, paragraphs 363, 418. After 150 years of inaction, the Crown can be compelled to address an injustice. The minority, paragraph 418. The Crown's failure to exercise its discretion for 150 years is a failure to diligently implement the treaty promise. and its role as guardian, this court must ensure the fulfillment of long-neglected promise. This is not a confusing exercise where people didn't know obligations, and that's why there was no movement. You heard from my uh, colleague, uh, Mr. Nauagabo, when he referred to the fact that settlement only occurred in this case after two levels of losses by Ontario. Serious negotiations only took place after the Court of Appeal judgment. Sanitizing the experience of Indigenous people over the last 173 years and converting this into something over which reasonable people can disagree does an injustice respectfully to what actually happened here. And it isn't confined to this case This court's reasons in Badger, breach of Treaty 8. This court's reasons in Marshall, the Mi'kmaq Treaties of 1760 and 61, prohibiting Indigenous fishing. The Mikasoo-Cree case, breach of Treaty 7. The Morris case, breach of North Sac Treaty, 1852. And of course, the Southwind case, most recently the breach of Treaty 3. All significant breaches, the history of treaty compliance is best described as being honored in its breach. And so we are not involved in an academic exercise where declaratory relief being meted out will simply result in the parties retiring and like reasonable people discussing it. Of course, Mr. Griffin, in his excellent advocacy for Ontario at the Supreme Court of Canada sounds eminently reasonable. He's a reasonable guy, but in the lower courts, Ask one what drove Justice Hennessy to her findings. Do we respect those findings? What drove the Court of Appeal to its findings? Do we respect them? Ask Mr. Griffin during his reply submission, the position taken by Ontario on stage three, that augmentation is going to be zero. There is a zero obligation to share resources because the colonial empire has not benefited from the resources. With the greatest of respect, We're at a crossroads in terms of the court respectfully stepping up. This is not a situation where we are dealing with parties of equally bargaining power. Indigenous people have done very badly. Residential schools, 60s scoops, murdered and missing Indigenous women and girls, and now the trauma of missing and unmarked graves in relation to missing children. There is no way to overstate the need to step in. It is a misreading of the Clyde River judgment, and I know Justice Karakatsanis knows this, paragraph 24. It's about the fact that it shouldn't come to this, that reconciliation shouldn't have to be achieved in the courtroom, but we are dealing with a recidivist. We are dealing with a repeat offender in the Crown. (laughs) 173 years of graciousness? No, 173 years of gracelessness, and it is not an answer, just trust me. It is in the Supreme Court of Canada, but their conduct and the findings of the court don't support it. You asked a question, Justice Martin, you asked, where do Indigenous people go if not to the court? I say respectfully, the answer is nowhere. They go nowhere in terms Thank of much. relief in getting the Crown to follow its own rules. Thank Your you.
0: timing is up. Thank you. I will repeat once again, which I often say, unfortunately, that interveners should not comment on the merit of the case, but are here to provide a different point of view uh, of interpretation, for instance, and should not decide or speak on the merit of the case. Kajja. Um,
10: Thank you Chief Justice, Justices, I'm speaking today on behalf of Halfway River First Nation, a Daneza people of Northeastern British Columbia and a beneficiary of Treaty Number 8. This morning I'd like to address the standard of review. In Halfway's respectful submission in the Aboriginal law context, the zeitgeist has always been deference, subject to legal errors although as this area of law continues to develop, trial judges may get the law wrong. A deferential standard to appellate review has been applied in numerous Aboriginal law cases. Aboriginal litigants have at times succeeded and at times failed by the application of this standard. In Delgamuuk, this court adopted the standard of palpable and overriding error for factual findings and endorsed a general principle of appellate non-interference. In Marshall, the court adopted the principles from Vanderpeet that findings of fact should not be overturned, absent a palpable and overriding error, but that questions of law are owed no deference. So what exactly is the scope of questions of law to which no deference is owed? In Delgamuk, the legal error was the trial judge ascribing no weight at all to the Indigenous oral history evidence, contrary to established legal principles. In Marshall, The legal error was the trial judge having limited his interpretation to the written text when that very text left the indigenous parties with an empty shell of a promise that did not give effect to the party's common intention, found by Marshall at paragraph 20, and did not give proper recognition to the evidentiary difficulties faced by by indigenous peoples, Marshall at paragraph 40. In West Moberly First Nations, a treaty interpretation case that halfway was a party to, the majority decision of the British Columbia Court of Appeal, written by Chief Justice Bowman, applied the Marshall standard and found that the fact the trial judge had drawn the inferences he found most compelling was not an error, but an appropriate exercise of his fact-finding role. His conclusions were owed to deference by this court. The majority emphasized that in lengthy and very complex trials such as that one, quote, The existence of inferences alternative to those drawn by the trial judge is not an error, but an inevitability. Yesterday, as my friend from Temit Agamal already mentioned, Justice Rowe had expressed the concern that if you take the position that the factual context and the treaty are the same thing, you make the treaties disappear. Halfway agrees that utter disregard for the first step in martial examination of the text by supplanting it with the context would risk doing just that, and could result in a legal error by going beyond what's plausible on the text. Similarly though, Havoy submits, if you disregard step two in Marshall by casting aside the factual context or by giving it no deference, a critical aspect of determining common intention and the indigenous perspective is lost and the historical reality in which treaties were negotiated, ignored. In our respectful submission, distinguishing the legal finding of common intention from the textual and contextual analysis that supports it, and applying two distinct standards of review to each, will effectively undermine the second step of Marshall and return us to privileging the written text of historic treaties contrary to the established case law. If no deference is given to the treaty interpretation exercise, appellate courts will be signaling to parties that trial is no longer the main event, and that an appeal will get you a de novo trial. Appellants will then have no choice but to to painstakingly take appellate courts through the evidentiary record, to diaries of men like Robinson, to transcripts of oral history testimony, to old maps, and so forth, in order to urge appellate courts to swap out the trial judge's conclusion on common intention for their own preferred one. Yes, historic Crown-Indigenous treaties are solemn, constitutionally protected, nation-to-nation agreements. But that constitutional status ought not be used to to undervalue the historic context and the Indigenous perspective put in evidence over a lengthy, complex trial. The manner in which a trial judge balances the facial meaning of the text with the historical and cultural context in order to come to a determination of common intention is a profoundly fact-driven exercise and is therefore owed deference. If there are no questions, uh, those are my submissions. Thank you.
0: Thank you very much. Ron Morris.
11: Good morning. Thank you, Justices. Um, I'm here uh, today on behalf of the Federation of Sovereign Indian Nations. Uh, They represent and advocate on behalf of 73 First Nations across three or across six treaty areas, treaties 2, 4, 5, 6, 8 and 10. So those are all the so-called numbered treaties. Um, The FSIN uh, advances claims on behalf of its members and I've acted for a number of those nations in relation to a myriad of claims before the specific claims policy or uh, through that process. Uh, Those would include treaty land entitlements, agricultural benefits, treaty annuities. These are promises from the treaty, as well as claims involving unlawful surrenders, expropriations of reserve lands, mismanagement of trust monies. Um, And uh, what's really important with that is that the specific claims policy is long recognized uh, a breach of fiduciary duty is a valid cause of action or a basis for a claim. So I, I one of the, our submissions is really to be cautious about dispensing with fiduciary duty, about accepting that part of the Ontario Court of Appeals decision that says there's, there's nothing that um, fiduciary duty can do that can't be done through the honor of the crown. Um, that um, one of our submissions is essentially that the honor of the crown is not a discrete cause of action unto itself. It's an interpretive principle and a very important one at that, but it is not a cause of action. And that could have some very unintended and important consequences for the advocacy and resolution of these types of important claims based on whether it's based on a breach of a treaty, a breach of a statute uh, or breach of a common law or equitable obligation. Uh, the court's uh, interpretation of the annual payment promises in the Robinson treaties could also have some significant impacts on, um, again, the interpretation of the number of treaties. Mr. Maurice, uh, could, law- I,
2: could I s- yeah. ask you specifically, you say in your factum that um, our, our judgment on the Robinson treaties will bear directly on the interpretation of analogous promises and obligations. Is there an analogous promise to the augmentation clause at issue here and the graciousness proviso that is uh, that we're called upon to interpret
11: um i would say there is there's uh, there are provisions for the payment of treaty annuities throughout every numbered treaty um the those treaties however are silent on whether or not there is an obligation to augment or increase the annuity over time so that is an important principle the, question in those cases will be similarly to uh, Marshall whether an implied obligation to increase the annuity over time to maintain its real buying power or um, value over time given that these are treaties of a perpetual and lasting nature. Um, so again one of our submissions here as well is again not to jettison the Uh, the important um, development of the law in relation to fiduciary duties Uh, but to see it really as part of uh, a broader um, set of obligations and and we've offered um, this conceptual kind of framework or looking at it in terms of concentric circles if I can take you to page three of our um, of our submission uh, we have what looks like Really a dartboard. Um starting with the proposition that at the center of that are the um the treaty obligations of the crown, the solemn promises that were made to First Nations. Some of those uh, the, uh, of course were expressed and the Crown made those obligations. Other obligations, on the other hand, are implied. Uh, I might add to that center circle as well constitutional and statutory obligations, which are also of an express nature, whether it's the natural resource transfer agreements, which provide for the obligation to provide lands uh, by the provincial crowns on behalf of the federal crown, um, or the uh, statutory provisions that protect reserve lands. uh, These are sources of obligations that if you fail to uphold, uh, your statutory obligations, your treaty obligations, where, which are express and clear, um, then it necessarily implies that you've also breached your fiduciary duty, and you've also failed to act in accordance with the honour of the crown. And I think that point is made very well by Professor Rotman um, in his uh, at paragraph nine of our our um, our brief, which I won't uh, quote, but it's uh, a an excellent way to think of it. Um, Harkening back to the tomogamy case, it's a good example where the court said there is a a treaty obligation to provide certain benefits to the tomogamy nation uh, and failure to do so is also a breach of their fiduciary obligation. Thank you very much. Um, Thank you very much.
3: Chief, can I just ask one question question, please? You didn't address anything about um, your argument for the equitable compensation. Can you just give me a quick summary of that, please?
11: Yes, um, yeah, I think the, um, the, the, the important part of this is that the courts have uh, signaled uh, in cases, important cases like Canson that, um, that the, the equitable, uh, a breach of an equitable obligation doesn't necessarily give rise to the whole panoply of uh, equitable remedies that it's uh, appropriate for the court to take into account the circumstances, the nature of the breach in fashioning an appropriate remedy. And sometimes that might be a uh, reference to uh, common law remedies, the garden variety type uh, that will help get there. But in other cases um, where the asset it no longer exists or it's being converted to somebody else's use, it's appropriate to look to equitable compensation as a way to enforce the trust that lies at the heart of that equitable relationship. Thank you very much. Uh,
0: Michael George.
12: Good morning. Thank you, Chief Justice, Justices. Um, I'm here with my co-counsel, Jessica Barlow. We're here for the Manitoba Kiwenoe Ogamagana, the MKO. The MKO advocates on behalf of the Nations of Treaties four, five, six, and 10 in Manitoba. Treaties which also contain annuity promises that have been historically undervalued. We'd like to focus on one issue, the need for a framework to address the Crown's longstanding failure to implement treaties to the detriment of Indigenous nations. We have a few overarching points. While this case is unique on its facts with the augmentation clause, this court can set requirements for how financial promises in treaties are implemented with their original spirit and intent of economic reconciliation with reciprocity and beyond thin declarations, which Justice Jamal asked about yesterday. The treaties already provide for a framework with roles and responsibilities and expectations of the parties. The treaties are nation to nation and intended to convey significant promises, some with perpetual annuities, but dramatically lost purchasing power, which must be restored. And I refer to the treaties four or five six and ten with respect to the annuity promises it might be a principled approach both meaningful and enforceable that keep the parties out of court the court has imposed frameworks in other matters to resolve disputes on a case-by-case basis in a principled way it could include compensation or strict requirements for treaty implementation that deal with the crown's failure to openly participate in advanced treaty implementation Remedies should be proportionate to those long-standing violations. Both mandamus and compensation might help to breathe life into the various treaties to avoid substantially devalued promises and empty shells of the original promises. As it was raised yesterday by Justices Jamal and Roe, what do we do with the 150 years of inaction? How does that change the remedies that are available? The court could require more substantive remedies, perhaps akin to mandamus, beyond declarations, recognizing treaties as constitutional in their nature. I appreciate the question raised by Justice Rowe as to whether remedies ought to be available in the form of declarations. Perhaps remedies should be available at first instance rather than a treaty party having to return to court to litigate both treaty breaches and the party's failures to follow the court's declarations. So remedies ought to fit the nature of the treaty breaches rather than fitting the treaty breaches into the established remedies. We know that indigenous understandings were not necessarily recorded in the treaties. To echo the Court of Appeal judgment of Laris and Pardue, It was not the understanding of the indigenous treaty partners that they would be deprived and suffer while non-indigenous communities thrived. The impoverished vision referred to by the trial judge points to the Crown failure to maintain the treaty relationship with indigenous treaty partners, that it took litigation after over 150 years to engage the Crown in treaty implementation. In closing, it has taken 150 years to get here to this court with this treaty. Guidance and consequences are needed and a firm message. The question is, is 150 years enough before a substantive remedy including compensation is ordered or does there need to be more time? And the trial judge said no. And those are my submissions subject to questions. Thank you. Thank you very much, Geneviève Boulet.
13: Good morning, Chief Justice, Justices. I, be here on behalf, I appear on behalf of Carry the Kettle Nakota Nation. I am joined by my co-counsel, Rhine Lake. Carry the Kettle, known as CTK, is a First Nation with reserve lands located in Treaty 4 territory. The ancestors of CTK are the Nakota people who lived at the Cypress Hills, over 400 kilometers from CTK's present reserve near Indian Head in what is now the province of Saskatchewan. To assist this honorable court, with the determination of the issues on appeal, CTK intervenes to provide submissions related to the nature, the scope, and the content of the duty of diligent treaty implementation. CTK submits that the majority of the Ontario Court of Appeal provided a helpful description of the duty of diligent implementation at paragraph 241 of the impugned decision. To paraphrase from this paragraph, the court stated that the Honour of the Crown demands a purposive interpretation of treaties The Crown must act diligently in pursuit of its solemn obligations and reconciliation, must diligently pursue implementation of treaty promises to achieve their intended purposes. Crown servants must seek to perform the obligations in a way that pursues the purpose behind the promise. Implementation need not be perfect, but a pattern of Crown errors and indifference that substantially frustrates the purpose of a solemn promise may be a breach of the duty. The submissions that follow will flesh out this, this description starting with the nature of the duty of treaty Diligent Treaty Implementation. What is the nature of the duty? CTG submits that the duty of Diligent Treaty Implementation is not a new cause of action. It is a duty that arises from the honour of the Crown, which governs how treaty promises are interpreted and how they are implemented. With regards to the scope of the duty, it is well established that the honour of the Crown is always at stake in the Crown's dealings with Indigenous Peoples. CTK submits that there is always a duty of diligent implementation on the part of the Crown where treaty rights are at stake. The Crown is always required to continuously uphold the spirit and intent of the treaty and cannot renege from its solemn promises at any time. What the Crown received under the treaty, First Nation lands, was by definition both an immediate benefit and one that would last forever. Treaty signatories were told by Crown officials that the treaty rights promised to them were to also last forever, and as such, this duty to diligently implement the promises must also be ongoing. Finally, with regards to the content of the duty, CTK submits that to uphold the honor and integrity of the Crown and to fulfill its duty of diligent treaty implementation, the Crown must take positive steps and act decisively to implement the purpose and intent of the treaty diligently. By diligently, by diligence, we mean a continual effort to accomplish something. CTK submits that the Crown does not have unfettered discretion as to when and how it chooses to implement treaty promises. The Crown cannot delay or minimize implementation to the point where it fails to complete its duty and frustrates the spirit and intent of the treaty. This court has stated that the specific content of the Crown's fiduciary duties vary depending on the nature and importance of the interests sought to be protected. That's from Williams Lake. CTK submits that by analogy, the specific content of the Crown's duty of diligent treaty implementation also varies depending on the context. For example, in the context of the Robinson treaties, diligent implementation required the Crown to take positive steps and act decisively to increase the annual payments. The Crown did so, for example, in 1875, which was the first and only time the annuity was augmented. By way of second example, in the context of Treaty 4, from CTK's perspective, the purpose of treaties on the prairies was to share Indigenous lands to facilitate, facilitate settlement in exchange for the necessary tools and reserve lands to allow the signatory bands the opportunity to transition to a new way of life. In this context, the content of the duty of diligent treaty implementation includes the duty to take steps immediately to survey and set aside reserve lands according to the treaty's written and oral terms in in consultation with signatory bands. The duty to preserve and protect reserve lands for the exclusive use and benefit of the bands, including by protecting reserve lands from settler encroachment. The duty to exercise discretion with utmost loyalty and good faith with regards to the Indigenous interests at stake. The duty to only alienate lands with consent of the band, evidenced by valid surrender, with payment of sufficient compensation, and at all times, to diligently implement the terms and promises of the treaty, particularly given the pending demise of traditional food sources and ways of life. Subject to any questions, these are our submissions.
0: Thank you very much. Kari Fox.
13: Thank you, and good morning, Chief Justice, Justices.
14: Many historical First Nations claims arise in the context of the nation-to-nation relationship that gave rise to the treaties, followed by the Crown's attempted unilateral assumption of authority. This has unjustly perpetuated a sovereign subject relationship, benefiting the Crown to the detriment of First Nations. The Crown promised treaty rights and entitlements to First Nations signatories. On countless occasions, the Crown has and continues to fail to meet its promises. If the scope and existence of treaty rights are subject to the whim of the Crown, the solemn nature of the treaties is ignored, the Crown's fiduciary duty breached, and its honor tarnished. On behalf of the Assembly of Manitoba Chiefs, we respectfully ask that this court interpret the treaties in a manner that reflects the nation to nation relationship between the Crown and First Nations and the Crown's shift from treaty partner to authoritarian. The Assembly of Manitoba Chiefs further asked this court to ensure that the Canadian judicial system can substantively enforce the Crown's treaty promises by recognizing annuity promises as cognizable Aboriginal interests. When judicially interpreting a treaty between First Nations and the Crown, consideration must be given to the nation-to-nation relationship, which was recognized and renewed through treaty. Treaties are unique and agreements sui generis and represented a solemn exchange of promises between the Crown and First Nations. Prior to European contact, First Nations existed on the lands now known as Canada since time immemorial with unique laws and rights derived from the Creator. First Nations in Manitoba exercised their sovereignty alongside the Crown's assumed sovereignty through negotiated treaties moving forward towards coexistence with harmony and balance. Treaties were entered into to create mutually beneficial agreements, and the very nature of treaty making is a recognition of the sovereign nationhood between the treating parties. The Assembly of Manitoba Chiefs respectfully submits that there is a need for a broader contextual interpretation of treaties regarding post-treaty conduct that considers the Crown's unilateral shift from an equal treaty partner to that of an authoritarian. The Crown's post-treaty conduct has unbalanced the original nation-to-nation treaty relationship. The Crown exercises significant powers over the lives and lands of First Nations and First Nation citizens, perpetuating an unequal relationship. Through coercive legislation and policies, especially the Indian Act, the Crown has attempted to control various aspects of the lives of First Nations, much to their detriment. The Crown historically banned First Nations cultural and spiritual practices, used starvation as an instrument of government policy, attempted to control the movement and economic livelihoods of First Nations citizens through the pass and permit systems and assumed discriminatory control over First Nations membership. Allowing the Crown unfettered discretion in assessing how to implement its treaty promises risks perpetuating continued injustices to First Nations. The fiduciary relationship between the Crown and First Nations is a necessary component of the Crown's treaty promises. Fiduciary law should reflect the nation-to-nation relationship that underpinned the colonial government's ability to exist in this country and the Crown's subsequent use of its discretion to renege on its treaty promises. In failing to uphold its sacred treaty promises, the Crown used a discretion that only it had. And attempted to subjugate First Nations and take unilateral control over their lands and resources in contravention of the founding sacred treaty relationships. The annuity promise was to provide the First Nations treaty signatories with compensation for the settlers use of lands and resources of which First Nations still hold legal rights. When recognized within that context and interpreted considering the nation to nation relationship, the annuity promises are cognizable Aboriginal interests suitable to ground a sui generis fiduciary duty. The concept of reconciliation involves moving away from the Crown's bad faith and authoritarian action and toward a respectful nation to nation relationship. Treaty promises are informed by and flow from the nation to nation relationship between the Crown and First Nations. Treaty promises are not unilaterally derived from the Crown. The Crown should not be absolved of responsibility for the negative impacts created by its post-treaty conduct, especially since these effects directly resulted from the Crown exercising assumed discretionary power over First Nations and First Nations citizens. Recognizing the Crown's treaty promises its fiduciary obligations, will support the ongoing project that seeks the reconciliation of Aboriginal and non-Aboriginal Canadians in a mutually respectful long-term
15: relationship.
14: Thank
0: you. Thank you very much. Katie Duke.
15: Chief Justice, Justices, on behalf of my client, West Moberly First Nations, I intend to focus my oral submissions on the issue of the standard of review and in particular on the implications of that would flow from treaty, treating treaty interpretation as a question of law. And I'd also like to pick up on some of the discussion from yesterday about this nation to nation relationship between treaty partners. And in my submission, characterizing treaty interpretation as a question of law would be contrary to this nation to nation relationship. And I say this for several reasons, first, Generally, only parties and their privies should be bound by the outcome of the application of legal principles to a set of factual determinations. This is the outcome of the normal rules of res judicata and stare decisis. Parties that participate in a piece of litigation and their privies are normally bound by the outcome of questions of mixed fact and law through the doctrine of res judicata, but only those extricable legal principles are binding on others through vertical or horizontal stare decisis. And it would be inconsistent with these doctrines for factual determinations that feed into a trial court's ultimate conclusion on treaty interpretation to be transformed into statements of law applicable to other Indigenous nations not involved in the litigation. Determining the common intention of treaty partners is really such a fact-heavy exercise that the factual findings cannot be neatly separated from the overall conclusion. Second, There's a real risk that important differences among Indigenous treaty nations may be lost. The court's conclusion on the meaning of a treaty and the treaty rights that flow from it are characterized simply as statements of law. Treaty interpretation involves significant significant consideration of the surrounding circumstances of treaty making, including of the culture, language and laws of the Indigenous treaty partner. The goal is to discern that unique covenant intended by the treaty partners. The language of the written text and the evidence of the surrounding circumstances are tools that allow us to do this. To take the Indigenous perspective seriously in this exercise means recognizing that this may differ among treaty nations. In the case of Treaty 8, for example, a number of Indigenous nations that adhere to the treaty were not present for those original negotiations. These other nations may have unique cultures, language, and legal, legal orders that weren't a different interpretation when the surrounding context of their adhesion or signing of the treaty is fully considered. Now, I note that there is an unsettled question in the case law about the extent to which the perspectives of the later adherents matters in treaty interpretation. But I'd urge the court to not prejudge this issue by characterizing treaty interpretation as a question of law because of its presidential value. To do so would really risk devaluing the importance of the unique cultures of different Indigenous nations and the possibility that differences between nations may lead to different results in some circumstances. So what does this mean for the role of precedent in treaty cases? The implication is not that every treaty case with a different Indigenous nation will involve starting at square one. In my submission, it would generally be contrary to the honour of the Crown for the Crown to reargue issues decided earlier, in earlier cases. The Crown will have normally have been a party to that earlier interpretation case, and it may be abusive process for it to take a position that is inconsistent with an earlier decision. There is also law from Justice Finch of the BC Court of Appeal in the Halfway River First Nation that states that it may not comply with the honor of the crown for the crown to argue that a treaty was explained in less favorable terms to some nations as compared to others. But what my position does mean is that indigenous nations in subsequent litigation will have the opportunity through either evidence that wasn't presented in the earlier case or evidence of a difference in the indigenous perspective to establish a treaty interpretation that departs from a previous precedent concerning concerning the same treaty text. This is a natural, and I say necessary, implication of treating Indigenous nations as distinct and autonomous political communities. So, to conclude, my point is that to characterize a court's conclusion of the meaning of a treaty as a point of law does not adequately give effect to this nation-to-nation relationship and muddies important implications for the doctrines of stare decisis and judicata. Only parties in their privies should be bound by the outcome of the application of legal principles to a side of factual findings, which is what treaty interpretation is. And second, characterizing treaty interpretation as question of law risks masking important distinctions in the perspective of different indigenous nations. Those are my submissions.
0: Thank you very much. Glenn Epp. Uh,
16: good morning. I represent the intervener the Athabasca Tribal Council, which is comprised of five First Nations, all of which are adherents to Treaty Number 8. Uh, given yesterday's submissions, I intend on addressing just two of the issues set out in our factum. The first issue I'd like to talk about is the effect of discretion uh, in a treaty obligation. As this Court has stated in the past, a right no matter how expansive in theory is only as meaningful as the remedy provided for its breach and of course the rights we're talking about today originate in treaty as we know the treaties between the crown and indigenous societies are unique they're so generous now it should go without saying that these treaties create enforceable obligations as noted in Marshall they are national commitments which the courts are obligated to give effect to however Ontario has suggested that there are some obligations found in the treaty which cannot be enforced by the court. Specifically, those treaty promises that have an element of discretion. Uh, According to Ontario, in such cases, the only remedy would be declaratory relief. I would submit that this argument must be incorrect. Treaty obligations are constitutional obligations simply having an element of discretion does not oust the supervisory role of the courts over such matters as the court has oversight of the crown's fulfillment of treaties when it is found that the crown has breached an obligation the court has authority to determine things such as what has been lost or determining the position the parties would have been in but for the breach having an element of discretion does not remove the court's role in this regard as noted in Southwind, Honour of the Crown governs all aspects of Crown Indigenous trees, including their fulfilment. If a court is asked to quantify damages because of the Crown's failure to fulfil its treaty promises, then Honour of the Crown provides the path to quantification. Simply put, Honour of the Crown dictates what the Crown should have done, and thus acts as the standard of fulfilment. From this, compensation can be quantified by the court even in cases involving discretion. The second point I'd like to make relates to the over-reliance on treaty text. Uh, Ontario suggests in their factum and in argument yesterday that the specific treaty wording is critical in establishing the common intention. I would submit that this is also incorrect. Uh, since Marshall, we have known that treaty text is not necessarily more important than any other evidence. Uh, As noted in Marshall, the written term of a treaty is only the starting point for the analysis. Written text, historical context, possible oral implied terms, all of these things have equal weight when interpreting treaties. In the West Moberly decision, uh, the majority from the British Columbia Court of Appeal uh, made an eloquent point on this, stating that the text of historical treaties recorded an agreement that had already been reached orally and they did not always record the full extent of the oral agreement. The text therefore cannot be assumed to better reflect the parties intentions than evidence by conduct or otherwise as to how the parties understood the terms of treaty. I would suggest this is an accurate statement of the law and at odds with the position that the written text is somehow more important than other aspects of treaty interpretation. I would suggest that perhaps the overemphasis on written text has come from Justice McLaughlin's dissenting opinion in Marshall. Uh, In her dissent, she stated that courts cannot alter the terms of a treaty by exceeding what is possible on the language or realistic. I think it's important to keep two points in mind with respect to this comment from Justice McLaughlin. First, uh, the phrasing possible on the language you will see that Justice McLaughlin took that from the horseman decision, where it was being used in the case of statutory interpretation. In Horseman, the court was concerned with the interpretation of the natural resource transfer agreement, and thus using that statement. I would suggest this is not a treaty interpretation principle. Second, and perhaps more importantly, Justice McLaughlin included the phrase, or realistic. Uh, Justice McLaughlin recognized that tree interpretation includes many factors and it's not just a text that is privileged. Thank you. Those are all my submissions.
0: Thank you very much. The court will take uh, its morning break. Fifteen minutes. Please be seated Mr Gallus
17: Chief Justice, Justices, um, I'm here today on behalf of the Sayout First Nation, uh, one of the successors to the uh, North Saanich Treaty uh, which was at issue in the Morris and case. I come to you today from Wasanich territory and I want to focus on two areas uh, in my brief submissions. Um, yesterday Justice Rowe pleaded for some coherence and clarity in the law and in my five minutes I'm going to do my best to hopefully bring a little bit of clarity around issues of remedies and limitations now in sparrow this court um, stated that section 35 calls for a just settlement for aboriginal peoples it renounces the old rules of the game under which the crown established courts of law and denied those courts the authority to question sovereign claims made by the crown now it's 33 years later And it still remains the case that the playing field is heavily tilted in the Crown's favour. Justice Binney in the Mikkasu case, as we we cite over and over again, found that the fundamental objective of Aboriginal law is reconciliation. And we all have a role to play in reconciliation, including this court. It's one of the urgent matters of our time. And frequently, and we heard this again yesterday, um, this court has encouraged good faith negotiation um, as a path to reconciliation, uh, most recently in the Days Hotel case. We agree. But how do you get there without the time and expense of complicated multi-year trials followed by endless appeals? Now, this isn't in my factum, but I've, having sat in on the Jim uh, the Shaw both sides case in this case, um, I have a submission that the court has a unique opportunity to advance that path you can be confident that by eliminating limitations defenses confirming that all remedial options are on the table for section 35 claims and i want to be clear i'm talking about section 35 claims that will level the playing field and encourage all parties to the negotiating table and as i'll explain this submission is not grounded in policy but supported by the case law of this court um, And so let me turn to remedies. Now declarations serve an important function, but in far too many cases will do little to further reconciliation and simply lead to more litigation. This was a concern that was expressed by the court yesterday. We submit that the court having found a constitutional right must have all the necessary remedial tools, including orders for damages and equitable compensation when a right has been breached by the Crown. Historic claims from 170-plus years ago don't need more negotiations. They need finality so the parties can move forward. Uh, The cases um, that we cite in our Factum, Sparrow, Delgamook, Chocotin, Southwind, and Rio Tinto all support the availability of damages or compensation when finding a breach of a Section 35 right, whether that be a substantive right or a procedural right. And I note parenthetically that none of these cases make any reference to Limitations Act. In our submission, there's no impediment to the court providing whatever remedial relief is just in the circumstances, when section 35 rights have been unjustifiably infringed. As we say, the foundational cases and the constitution support it. Now I wanna turn to limitations. Um, in our fact, and we, we set out three bases, uh, for that constitutional, the policy arguments support it. Um, and classifying limitations as simply procedural often will lead to defeating the right. Now, I wanted to talk about the three cases um, from this court, uh, MMF, YWACM, and Layman. And in MMF, this court confirmed that limitations of action statutes cannot prevent the courts as guardians of the Constitution from issuing declarations on constitutionality of legislation and Crown conduct. Now, I note that there is a concern uh, with the Wakecom and layman cases that you'd be overturning the law if you found that limitations don't apply. In my view, and I think it's consistent with the two cases, proceeding in this manner, the court's not overturning the law, but clarifying it. And let me explain, Waiwakem, it's not a Section 35 case. It involved the allocation of reserve lands. And consistent with the fiduciary cases that had come before, including Guerin, the court found limitations applied. Similarly, Layman isn't a Section 35 case either. The treaty rights have been extinguished by the majority of the band members in that case, taking Métis script. There was no existing treaty right for the court to consider. And so I say that that case is more analogous to the Blueberry River case from 1995. I see my time is up.
0: Thank you very much. Um, just one. thank you, okay.
18: Kevin Hill. Chief Justice, justices, uh, Ms. Abel, and I represent Kitasiknow Tribal Council, whose member nations are adherents to Treaty Eight in northern Alberta. And our submission today is about what makes a remedy effective. Uh, We look at that question through the lens of international human rights law. When determining whether a remedy is effective or not, international law gives priority to the perspective of the injured party, the indigenous community in question. What would they perceive as effective? And in our factum, we reviewed various restatements of that issue from the International Law Association and its reports and resolutions. First, quote, the use of the term effective presupposes that the form of redress granted must be perceived by the community concerned as adequate to feel actually repaired the wrong suffered according to their own perspective. Quote. Second, effective remedies reestablish the prior situation or grant redress to the harmed communities, quote, taking into primary account their own perception of the matter. Quote. Third, remedies must be capable to remove to the maximum extent possible. Quote, the effects of the wrong, as they are perceived by the communities concerned, End quote. and fourth, compensation must be quote, perceived as just, fair, and equitable by the indigenous communities concerned.
0: Is your. Uh, End w- quote. I'm sorry. Would uh, your answer be the same if there is discretion attached to the obligation?
18: Yes and Justice Wagner that takes me to our review of the Inter-American Court jurisprudence where uh, the Inter-American Court has found has similarly interpreted the right to effective remedies and found that they cannot be purely procedural or subject to purely discretionary criteria of the state
5: but the inter-american human rights treaty is not international law its comparative law because it relates to a treaty among certain countries Canada not being one of them it does not relate to the international community universally the principles that
18: the American Convention and the American Declaration express are common among the uh, other convention and binding international law. And I say that we can look to the Inter-American Court's jurisprudence to interpret things like the right to effective remedies, which are present in the um, International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights, and the International Convention on the Elimination of All Forms of Discrimination, both of which are binding on Canada.
6: I wonder whether a more appropriate analogy rather than going to international law might be, because this case raises separation of powers concerns, just as the uh, Carter case in 2010 raised separation of powers concerns, and the court didn't order Mr. Carter to be repatriated, instead it issued a declaration recognizing that uh, an order to repatriate would have been trenched upon the separation of powers and the Crown's prerogative in international affairs. But Mr. Picardo was repatriated because the the government respected the declaration that the court made. So uh, I wonder whether the, my question is, doesn't the declaration have to take account of the specific context, the specific separation of power's concerns, and that the government, uh, we, we must assume that the government will respect the rule of law and will abide by the court's declaration as it did in 2010.
18: Uh, Justice Jamal, I I accept those propositions. I would just also point to um, the, the guidance at the international level, which suggests that when looking at what's effective, it makes sense to look at the perspective of the injured party and what is necessary in their view to redress the wrong. And I would say that there are recent cases from the Quebec Superior Court, which we provided, as well as the Quebec Court of Appeal that shows a willingness to interpret section 35 in light of that international law.
0: Thank you very much.
18: Those are my submissions.
0: Thank you. Christelle Land.
19: Good morning Chief Justice, Justices. I represent the Saugeen Ojibwe Nation who are treaty partners with the Crown. Their treaty relationship is founded in a series of historic treaties. The Saginajibwe take no position on whether a fiduciary duty arises in relation to the treaty augmentation promise that is at issue before you. But we ask this court to take care not to discard fiduciary law as a tool to enforce the Crown's treaty promises to First Nations more generally. We say it has an important role to play in protecting historic treaty relationships. In my submissions today, I wanna focus on three issues that came up yesterday about the Crown's fiduciary duty in the context of historic treaties. First, there was a question raised about whether this court's jurisprudence on the honor of the Crown and the sui generis fiduciary duties can be read together in a coherent fashion. And we say that it can't. It's true that after Guerin, there was some confusion about whether all aspects of the Crown-Indigenous relationship were subject to fiduciary obligations. However, this court has since clarified that the honor of the Crown is the overarching principle that governs all aspects of the relationship and that only in some specific circumstances, a fiduciary duty will arise out of that broader principle. We say there's nothing incoherent about this. A sui generis fiduciary duty applies where the Crown takes discretionary control over a specific or cognizable Aboriginal interest. And this can and often does happen in the context of historic treaties. As recently as Southwind, this court confirmed that strong fiduciary duties arise where the Crown exercises control of treaty rights. And we say there is good reason for that. It's because the structure of the historic treaty relationship lines up with the structure and purposes of fiduciary law. Fiduciary obligations arise where one party assumes the discretionary power to affect the legal or vital practical interests of another. And because of the structure of that relationship, the beneficiary becomes vulnerable to how the fiduciary uses their power. The purpose of fiduciary law is to protect the important relationships that arise out of that trust and reliance. Now this court has already said in Southwind that the Crown-Indigenous relationship is the exact kind of socially important relationship that attracts fiduciary obligations. And in our view, nowhere is that comment more apt than in the context of historic treaties.
5: But and I and I, I don't want to overemphasize the comparison with other areas of the law because Aboriginal treaty rights are sui-generous. But is there not a fundamental distinction between something like the duty of good faith in the fulfillment of contract obligations? versus the fulfillment of a fiduciary duty in the, in that in the, the duty of good faith you can protect your own interests but you must be properly mindful of the other party's interests given your obligations whereas in a fiduciary relationship you must submerge your own interests and act only in the interests of the, uh, the person for toward whom you have the fiduciary duty and and and, it, and it's just in one instance, you can only take into account the other party's interests, and in the other instance, there is a certain balancing and in taking into account of your own plus your uh, contracting party's interest.
19: Thank you, Justice Rowe. So I, I take your point about the distinction between the, the duty of good faith in contracts and the fiduciary duty. I think there's two things that I'd like to say about that. The first is that um, it's important to remember that the historic treaties were already a balancing of interests. So in the context of many of them, uh, newcomers were allowed onto the First Nations land. That was what was done in order to balance the newcomers' interests. And then in exchange, First Nations were given promises in relation to which the crown ought to be required to prioritize their interests. So that's the first thing I wanna say about that. The second thing, is that the idea that the crown may have to account for other obligations at times in its role as fiduciary has been incorporated into the doctrine governing sui generis fiduciary duties from the get go. So this court said that the crown's fiduciary relationship to First Nations has its origins in the Royal Proclamation of 1763 and the role that the crown assumed as an intermediary between indigenous peoples and newcomers. So from the start, protecting First Nations' interests in the face of competing demands, excuse me, has been part of this picture. And the court has provided guidance in subsequent case law like Osoyo's, like Will about how and when those competing interests can be taken into account. But the jurisprudence is also clear that the fact that there are competing interests in the picture doesn't mean that a fiduciary duty can't arise and it doesn't mean that it will just melt away, as this court put it in Southwind.
0: Thank you very much. Adrienne uh, Telford.
20: Good morning, Chief Justice and Justices. I'm here with my co-counsel, Jackie Esmond, on behalf of Narrows First Nation, Asapicha Siwagong, Anishinaabek. We'd like to address Ontario's position yesterday that because the treaty promise involves an exercise of discretion and polycentric considerations, that it's best left to the Crown, and not the courts to determine the substantive remedies. We have, several report, uh, we have several points in response. First, we agree that in an ideal world, the parties will be able to negotiate an appropriate remedial relief. But this does not remove the need for the judicial backstop of the courts. In fact, it's the presence of the independent judiciary and their ability to issue binding remedial orders as a backstop that incentivizes and facilitates meaningful negotiations. My second point, what Ontario seeks is in essence a judicial no-go zone with respect to the substance of its constitutional obligations under the Treaty Augmentation Clause. The Crown, as part of the executive, seeks to immunize its exercise of discretion from meaningful constitutional review and court-ordered remedies on substantive grounds. And we know from Crevier, the executive branch cannot immunize its decision-making from constitutional review by the courts. The fact that the that Ontario here is seeking a more limited immunity, confined to the substance of remedies, but not process, should be no different.
3: Can I just stop you there and I, can I just ask you, how would you, or, or I guess talk to us more about when you talk about the meaningful constitutional remedies in your factum, what do you mean by that?
20: Well, we mean robust, effective remedies that essentially make the Indigenous claimant whole, right, based on regular remedial principles, um, equitable compensation where uh, issues of equity are relevant, um, it, uh, substance, substantive remedies that go further than simply declaratory relief. Um, the courts have a foundational role to play in our constitutional democracy. They are the cornerstone of the constitutional separation of powers and they should not abdicate their role as arbiters of disputes and guardian of the Constitution by reading down their remedial jurisdiction under Section 35. Where the parties are not able to reach agreement on appropriate remedy, the courts must stand ready to issue effective constitutional relief. A third point, Ontario's position would create, in effect, a two-tier constitutional rights system where only Section 35 treaty claimants are denied access to substantive judicial remedies. This simply cannot be right. Moving now to the court's concerns about the discretionary and polycentric nature of the Crown's duties under the Augmentation Clause. Justice Jamal asked yesterday, shouldn't the court wait for the crown to first exercise its discretion? And we say that the crown already exercised its discretion when it chose to do nothing for 150 years. So having made its decision, the court now has a constitutional role to determine the appropriate remedy for the crown's breach should the parties not reach agreement on the issue. Many section 35 cases and charter cases involve elements of crown discretion and polycentric decision-making. In the constitutional context, courts have grappled with some of the most difficult and complex social, economic, and political issues with conflicting expert and social science evidence, including reviewing the constitutionality of wage restraint legislation, ensuring access to adequate healthcare, medically assisted dying, and safe injection sites. Courts make these challenging decisions all the time based on the legal principles, evidence, and submissions before them. This case is no different. And dare I say that the reason the determination of remedy might be hard in this case is because the Crown didn't do its job for 150 years. And we (laughs) say that the Crown should not be able to rely or to benefit from its delay by relying on the challenges posed by the passage of time to evade a substantive judicial remedy. my final point, if the court denies access to substantive remedies for treaty breaches, it will, at least, it will result in at least several anomalies. First, the specific claims tribunal under its home statute can and has ordered compensation for treaty breaches relating to lands and other assets, including annuities. If Ontario's position is correct and a treaty breach can only result in declaratory relief, this leads to an anomaly where a superior court with inherent jurisdiction has narrower remedial jurisdiction on constitutional breaches than a statutory tribunal. Thank you I you see much. my time's up. Thank, Thank you. you.
21: Peter Millard. Chief Justice, Justices. This intervener is a coalition of the Union of BC Indian Chiefs, inkla Nation Tribal Council, Chihuahua First Nation, Bar First Nation, Nisconleth Indian Band, Penticton Indian Band, Skappa Indian Band, and Upper Nicola Band. The members of this coalition are united by decades of experience fighting for fair redress for the Crown's breaches of its historical promises through the judicial and the specific claims processes. The coalition's submissions focus on the essential role of Indigenous legal traditions and Indigenous laws in the interpretation of historical crown promises to Indigenous peoples. Indigenous legal traditions and Indigenous laws refer respectively to the diverse legal orders of Indigenous peoples and to the laws within those legal orders. Canada is and always has been a multi multijuridical nation Indigenous legal traditions together with the common law and the civil law traditions form the legal foundation of this country.
5: Just a quick question. Your clients, are they concerned with their treaty rights? Because I'm not sure whether they're, um, they have treaties or are we talking about here aboriginal versus treaty rights?
21: Thank you. Our clients uh, do not have treaty rights. Our clients are concerned with their Aboriginal rights, but, but more specifically, they're concerned with historic obligations arising from Crown discretion that has been historically exercised in relation to their lands and the principles by which those breaches or, or that conduct, that Crown historical conduct is assessed. Uh, and that's largely through the specific claims process, but that process applies legal principles set down by this court. In this case, the trial judge interpreted the meaning of the treaty annuity augmentation promise by drawing on both the Crown and the Anishinaabe perspective on that promise. She recognized that the Anishinaabe parties to the treaties understood that promise in the context of their legal traditions and made findings around the content and the cultural context of those traditions. And this appeal is an important opportunity for the court to affirm the need to include Indigenous legal traditions in the treaty interpretation exercise. In its factum, the coalition explains that the inclusion of Indigenous laws in the adjudication of historical disputes between the Crown and Indigenous peoples is consistent with this court's jurisprudence, upholds the honor of the Crown, advances reconciliation, and supports the implementation of the United Nations declarations on the rights of Indigenous peoples. And I'll briefly address four points from our factum. First, Indigenous laws are essential to give meaning to treaty promises. The true meaning of the Crown's obligations to Indigenous peoples can only be fully understood with consideration of Indigenous laws. The laws of indigenous community inform that community's understanding of the content of the crown's promises and of the harm caused by the crown's failure to keep its promises. Second, consideration of indigenous laws advances reconciliation. Including an indigenous community's legal traditions in the interpretation of historical crown promises and the determination of redress for a breach of such a promise will result in a process that's more inclusive and more in keeping with that people's values and identities Which will increase the legitimacy of the process and facilitate healing. Third, consideration of Indigenous laws is consistent with the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples. The Declaration articulates broadly accepted norms that constitute the minimum standards for the survival, dignity, and well-being of Indigenous peoples of the world. It is more than an aspirational document. Canada has committed to implementing the Declaration which the Truth and Reconciliation Commission affirmed must be the framework for reconciliation in Canadian society. And Articles 27 and 40 of the Declaration require that disputes between states and Indigenous peoples be resolved with consideration of Indigenous laws. And fourth, Canadian courts are capable of respectfully considering Indigenous laws. Doing so requires courts to make a concerted effort to understand indigenous laws and their cultural context. This is no easy task, but the trial judgment in this case demonstrates that it can be done. Courts can and must make space for indigenous law and its cultural context in the courtroom. So in closing, this appeal presents an opportunity for the court to recognize the value of a meaningful role for indigenous laws in the interpretation and implementation of historical crown promises and in doing so to support reconciliation in a just and pluralistic society. Thank you.
0: Thank you very much. Patricia Lawrence.
22: Good morning, Chief Justice, Justices. I appear before you today with my co-counsel, Samantha Dawson, on behalf of the Anishnabek Nation, the oldest political organization, in Ontario, tracing its roots back to the Confederacy of Three Fires which existed long before European contact. Today, the Anishinaabe Nation represents 39 First Nations across the lands we now know as the province of Ontario. In our factum, we set out the Anishinaabe Nation's position in respect of two issues of central importance to them. In our brief submissions today, we'll focus on the critical role of the Anishinaabe perspective, including Anishinaabe law and legal principles in treaty interpretation cases. What does the jurisprudence of this court tell us about why contextual evidence of the Indigenous party's perspective is critical in treaty interpretation cases? The principles developed by this court in Marshall were developed in response to a finding by a majority of the court that the Court of Appeal in that case had taken too strict an approach to the use of extrinsic evidence in interpreting the historic treaty at issue in that case. The court of appeal had found that without in the absence of ambiguity on the face of the treaty it couldn't consider extrinsic evidence and this court relying on taylor and williams held that the evidence of historical and contextual cultural context of a treaty may be received even absent any ambiguity on the face of the treaty why one of the main justifications cited by justice binney was the fact that the indigenous parties did not for all practical purposes, have the opportunity to create their own written record of the treaty negotiations. Additionally, this court has recognized in cases like Badger, Sundown, and Miccosu, that oral promises made by the Crown in the lead up to the signing of the written treaty document form part of the treaty. So in many cases, contextual evidence is more than just context. And to respond to the question or comment from Justice Jamal this morning, we we submit that it's not only in cases where the contextual evidence reveals an oral promise, that that contextual evidence is important and and needs to be assessed and considered. I agree agree with you
6: there, but I wonder, um, I mean, Donald Marshall was convicted at trial, as you rightly pointed out, and it's because the the Supreme Court intervened on the basis that it was the, the weight to be given to the various pieces of evidence that weren't considered by the trial judge, that it was considered an error of law. So I guess the, any any ruling we make on on the standard of review also has to take account of cases where the indigenous peoples are unsuccessful at trial because of an inappropriate weight being given to the indigenous perspective. So it has to cut both ways, it seems to me, because it's not going to be in every case where the indigenous community is successful at first instance. they may be unsuccessful. So that that is why that is an error of law. So I agree with you on the interpretation of Marshall, but it seems to me it has implications for the standard of review.
22: Yes, thank you. Um, in our fact that we don't address standard of review and I was only going to, uh, to refer you a uh, little bit in my submissions to uh, the connection between The importance of contextual evidence and the standard of review analysis. Um, In Marshall, Justice Binney did point out that the special rules that have been developed for interpreting treaties recognize, and I quote, the special difficulties of ascertaining what in fact was agreed to. It's this recognition that the written terms of a treaty generally don't tell the whole story that led this court to articulate the task required in treaty interpretation cases as being to choose from among the various possible interpretations of the common intention of the treaty parties at the time the treaty was made the one that best reconciles their interests. In Marshall, and this has already been I think referred to by counsel for the Athabasca Tribal Council this morning, um, Justice Binney did note that failing to give due weight to the evidence of the Indigenous perspective has the effect of giving excessive weight to the concerns and, spec- and perspectives of the Crown since they were the ones who held the pen. I wanted to point the court to paragraph 326 of Justice Hennessy's stage one reasons where she sets out some of the specific factors that made the search for common intention challenging in this case. And I just wanna highlight a few The first, she acknowledges that the parties held different world views and elaborates a bit on what those were. She also notes that the treaties were written in a language and according to the linguistic practices and patterns of Euro-Canadians and that elders and language specialists before her testified that certain words and concepts in the treaties could not be translated into Anishinaabemowin.
0: I would ask you to, to finish your time is up.
22: Okay. Thank I'd you just, very much. i uh, wrap up by asking this court, as uh, more fully set out in our factum, to provide guidance and direction to future trial courts to ensure Anishinaabe, the Anishinaabe perspective is given the weight that it is entitled to in treaty interpretation cases. Thank you very Thank much.
0: You. Alexandria Winterburn.
23: Good day, Chief Justice, Justices. Mm-hmm. On behalf of the Indigenous Bar Association, the IBA, I would like to make submissions on two points. First, the distinction between Indigenous law versus Aboriginal law, and second, how Indigenous laws should be considered by courts as a part of of treaty interpretation. On my first point, the IBA asked this court to clearly distinguish between Indigenous law, which flows from Indigenous peoples themselves, versus Aboriginal law, which is law based on how Canadian courts interpret treaties or Aboriginal rights protected by Section 35. We say that there is an important distinction with a difference between these two bodies of law and the time has come for this court to acknowledge this difference. Clarity on language and terms is important. As Canadian courts increasingly are asked to consider Indigenous laws, using correct terminology is critical to ensure that Indigenous people's own laws can inform, but not be subsumed by, Canada's Aboriginal law jurisprudence. The IBA asks this court to take care in the language you use to describe Indigenous laws and to respect the provenance of this distinct body of law. Second, and related to this point, the IBA submits that the time has come to clearly acknowledge that Indigenous laws must be considered as laws, not just as perspectives, customs, or traditions of Indigenous peoples. We say this because Canada is and has always been a multi-juridical country, including common law, civil law and Indigenous laws. This appeal provides the opportunity for this court to clarify that Indigenous laws must be considered as part of finding the common intention of the parties in treaty interpretation. While this court has long acknowledged that the Indigenous perspective has equal weight in the interpretation exercise, with respect, law is more than perspective. Individuals may each perceive an event differently, but a society's laws are clear on legal actions. Continuing to relegate Indigenous laws to nothing more than perspective or custom is to continue the colonial biases about the inferiority or primitive nature of Indigenous societies. This was not true in 1850, and it is not true today. Indigenous nations have robust and sophisticated legal systems that have always governed their interactions with other peoples, including the nation-to-nation agreements reached in treaties. Indigenous laws form part of the essential context in which Indigenous nations and the Crown made treaties and would have informed the Indigenous party as they sat down in negotiations with the Crown. In this way, Indigenous laws and legal orders provide the outer limits on textual interpretation, and they act as the guardrails within which the common intention is found. An interpretation that would find one party breaching their own laws cannot be sustained. A clear framework from this court about how Indigenous laws are respectfully brought into the common law treaty interpretation exercise is urgently needed. In considering Indigenous laws, judges must embrace their duty to learn, not only about different Indigenous cultures, but about the different Indigenous legal orders that make up Canada's multi multi-juridical roots. The trial judge in this case recognized her duty to learn and the need to consider Anishinaabe law as part of the common intention analysis. For example, similar to how this court has found that the honour of the Crown is an overarching legal principle animating Aboriginal law, the trial judge recognized the legal principles of respect, responsibility, reciprocity, and renewal, the the four Rs that animate Anishinaabe law. She then considered these four Rs as the guardrails about what was within the scope of the common intention and found that a revenue sharing model was consistent with the perspective the Anishinaabe chiefs held about upholding these legal principles. She likewise rejected other interpretations not consistent with these principles as not possible of forming part of the common intention of the parties. Yesterday in Mr. Nawagabo's submissions, you received a glimpse, a mere 30 minutes of the richness and depth of Anishinaabe law and legal orders. The trial judge was steeped in this Indigenous law for over 78 sitting days as part of stage one alone. She brought indigenous laws into the courtroom and was able to immerse herself in the beauty of Anishinaabe laws, language, and ceremony. She acknowledged the profound gift of these Anishinaabe teachings through the final paragraphs of her judgment under the heading Miigwetch, or thank you. The IBA submits that where indigenous laws have been respectfully considered (laughs) as law and as part of the treaty interpretation analysis that these findings in fact and inferences of mixed fact and law should be accorded deference. To do otherwise is to risk the Anishinaabe law being watered down, distorted or worse, lost entirely on appeal. Subject to any questions, those are our submissions.
0: Justice Rouault has a question for
5: you. Yes, it, it, it may be perhaps more in the nature of a comment, but I will be brief. In Deshotel, this court was very careful to refer to the laws, customs and practices by which Indigenous uh, peoples govern their own affairs, and so I'm not. I, I, I'm with you. We need to be very careful about the recognition between indigenous and, and aboriginal law, but maybe we've started on that.
23: You have, thank you Justice Rowe.
5: Thank you. Uh, Stuart uh, Woodkey.
24: Yes, good morning uh, Chief Justice, Justices. I along with my colleague Adam Williamson are counsel for the intervener of the Assembly of First Nations. The AFN is a national representative body of First Nations in Canada. For the purposes of our submissions this morning, the AFN will focus on the central question in this appeal. What are the appropriate remedies for the Crown's breach of treaty obligations? As noted by the Royal Proclamation, I mean the Royal Commission on Aboriginal Peoples, uh, the, on, the original meaning, spirit, intent of treaties have become obscured. For too long, the Crown has ignored and marginalized its treaties with First Nations, despite First Nations' insistence that treaties are a key aspects to the relationship. Through this appeal, Ontario seeks to advance its own paradigm on Crown-First Nation relations. Ontario argues that the honour of the Crown gives rise to procedural requirements, but does not dictate the specific amounts or give rise to the specific remedies nor impose constitutional obligations to implement a treaty in a matter that they do not agree with. The polycentric considerations being advanced by the Crown, where balancing of any discretionary argumentation amounts against the broad economic policy issues is problematic for First Nations. It is problematic in that once the Crown has been found to act dishonorably, the Crown will continue to exercise discretion to the remedy uh the breach effectively allowing the perpetrator of the breach to quantify the remedy this approach will not allow i mean this approach will allow the government to continue to marginalize first nations in favor of the broader public interest it'll perpetuate perpetuate the historic disadvantage and prolong the subjugation of first nations peoples the afn submits that the court of appeal was correct in finding that where there has been dishonorable conduct and the duty of diligent implementation has been breached, a court may order remedies aimed at ensuring that the Crown fulfills its treaty promises. In light of Section 35, rights, the honour of the Crown is, in essence, a constitutional principle. As guardians of the Constitution, the courts must have the capacity to fully assess and redress breaches of fundamental constitutional principles, including the Crown's obligation to act honorably in all dealings with First Nations and broken constitutionally protected treaty promises. This means that full redress for the violation of the special relationship must be available to the agreed First Nations who have been subjected to abject neglect in the context of treaty promises. The honor of the Crown commensurates requires commensurately requires the availability of concrete and effective remedies. The AFN submits that the court's assessment of the consequences of the Crown's failure to diligently implement its treaty promises and its dishonourable conduct can be informed by international discourse. Canada has recently enacted the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples Act, emphasising the import of fundamental international human rights standards identified in the United Declarations on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples into the domestic sphere. Article 37 of the Declaration requires the Crown to honor and respect the nation-to-nation relationship in the treaties that is conduct- concluded with First Nations, noting that First Nations people have the right uh, to the recognition, observance, enforcement, and enforcement of treaties. Article 8 of the UN Declaration requires positive effective mechanisms for redress of any actions which had the effect of dispossessing Indigenous peoples of their lands, territories, and resources. The right to effective remedies is also enshrined in international conventions such as the International Covenant on Political, I mean, Civil and Political Rights. Under international discourse, remedies must be adequate, effective, adequate and effective. Such remedies must address the wrong of Indigenous peoples encountered and provide for the full restitution. Now, the suggestion that a declaration is the only relief that ought to be granted falls short of international standards. The proposition is that a strongly worded declaration may compel the Crown to return to the ta- negotiation table to, uh, with its treaty partner to work out a negotiated settlement. However, declarations are not the most practical process in every circumstance. In essence, the model requires First Nations to expend significant resources to negotiate, then to seek a declaration by the court, and then return back to the table and again face ex- excessive legal costs with respect to uh, getting uh, other remedies. In closing, uh, the AFN would submit that uh, once an Indigenous claimant has established their Aboriginal treaty or inherent rights has been violated, access to effective judicial remedies in a sense uh, is essential. Otherwise, First Nations are required to continue to wait uh, for a a remedy to be provided to them. Thank Thank you. you.
0: Thank you very much. Reply, Mr. Nawagabu? Or... Thank you. But before you begin, I have a question for you. same question I will put to um, Mr. Griffin. <clears throat> um, you both referred to offer of settlement, um, amounts, discussions. What should we do with thats that? Is that uh, First of all, that's not evidence, that's information. So what's the impact of that information on the decision we have to release? If there is any. I
25: would say there isn't any, and in fact it would be improper for you to consider it. It's, we haven't, I was surprised to see submissions from stage three in my friend's condensed book. I don't think he made an application for new evidence. It's, it's not evidence, it's properly before the court about what the treaty means. Okay. he he raised it and and we've confirmed and there's things in the public in the public realm but I, I don't think you can take too much from it as we've said it's a proposed settlement it's not final we don't we don't know if it will ever come about
6: but we're in an unusual situation of having phase three stage three already argued already waiting for a judgment which can apparently come any time between now and February so we're in a bit of a uh, an unusual situation we're going to be making if there hadn't been those uh, uh, submissions um, we can't say that the crown um, we can't ignore I, I wonder how can we ignore the fact that there has been a resolution of one aspect of the claim or of one uh, treaty beneficiary um, in terms of whether there's been as a result of the um, uh, trial decision the court of appeal decision there has been Uh, Negotiation and resolution. I mean that seems to me to be an exercise belatedly. I concede And I think the crown would concede belatedly uh, Honorable negotiation at least for the satisfaction of one party. How can we ignore that?
25: Well, as I've said, it's not settled yet Um, So it would be dangerous for it to play too big a role in what you decide But at the same time we don't know what motivated anyone to settle in this way, and and your there there are two questions about about compensation or about um, this a suggestion of a declaration before you. I tried to mention this yesterday. It's one thing about whether or not declarations would be useful in the ongoing treaty relationship going forward. The second question is is the court capable, I think is what, my, what, what, what the justices have suggested, is the court capable of coming up with redress? And, and I don't know how the fact that one party might have decided that they wanted to move on with their relationship with the crown, how does that, how does that affect either one of those? It's difficult for me to well, understand. Well, were,
6: we're being asked, as I understand it, and correct me if I'm wrong, we're being asked to give a declaration with respect to, in part, um, the conduct of phase stage three. Stage three has already been argued, and one of the parties has settled in respect of the past. So I'm just, it doesn't seem to me at at all academic. It seems to me extremely relevant, because the the order that the Court of Appeal minority gave, which which Ontario says is too broad, uh, it seems to me, has an impact on what happened in stage three and what's appropriate for stage three. So I just don't understand how we can shut our eyes to that.
25: Um. Well, at stage three, I mean, to be clear, what we're asking the court to do is dismiss Ontario's appeal such that the majority's uh, uh, order stands, the the trial judge's order as modified by the majority of the court of appeal stands. So there's no request there to give... Uh, direction for stage three, particularly. Stage three is, the judge had to do all the things that we know are going to be so difficult. She had to come up with, based on the evidence and the argument of the parties, she had to come up with a way to quantify the compensation. I I
0: understand that the judgment will be released. Uh, What's your position on that? It will be released soon by the first judge on stage three?
25: We didn't participate in stage three, so I don't have any knowledge of that. My understanding is what the trial judge said was that she would consider the request to hold it until after a decision was rendered, um, but that um, she would let the parties know in a timely way if she was going to hold it, and I don't think anyone's heard yeah, But here's him.
5: Here's the problem. There's a sequence, there's a logical sequence. The interpretation of the treaty the nature and the extent of the infringement and the remedy. We're going to get a decision from the Superior Court judge as to the remedy, which is based on her understanding of the treaty and the nature of the infringement. What if this court says, guess what, you got it wrong. You got it wrong as to the nature of the treaty obligation and the nature of the infringement then the, the, <laughs> the remedy, it just, it, it just it's kind of, it, it can't work because it's based on an, an understanding of the treaty, I'm, I'm saying hypothetically, right? The only sensible thing to do here <clears throat> is for the judge to wait. I find it extraordinary that the judge is contemplating, don't worry about the Supreme Court of Canada, I'm just gonna render my decision. I, I mean, it, I, I, I find it baffling uh, almost unbelievable, frankly.
25: Well, I, think, I, I <coughs> think we have to remember the context of this. The Red Rock and White Sands case was started, I'm not sure, maybe in 2001. Ours have started in 2014. It has been a long journey so far. And, um, you know, the elders in the community, we're losing them, and they haven't had an opportunity to see the results of this court case, and I think it was important that this difficult issue of compensation start to be addressed. Maybe there will be some ways in which it is not consistent with this court's ruling, and then that will have to be addressed. But it could be that even if you choose a different interpretation than she chose, that it isn't actually going to affect the assessment very much.
5: But but if she waits, if she waits, She she knows what the framework is. If she renders her decision without knowing the framework, it may be a complete mess for everyone, just a situation of chaos in which no one knows what to do next or what the status of the decision is.
25: I I understand the concern that you're expressing, and um, I, I don't know how I can address it.
0: All right, thank you. Your five minutes will start right now.
25: Thank you. (laughs) Um, In response to the submissions from the Attorney General of New Brunswick, we agree that the Marshall test for treaty interpretation can be affirmed. But we say reconciliation is in fact relevant to the interpretation of treaties and not just to the protection of treaty rights. Marshall points us to the polar star of treaty interpretation the common intention of the parties at the time the treaty was signed. That is why treaty interpretation is such a fact-intensive exercise. That is why treaty interpretation is so much different than the interpretation of constitutional instruments like that considered in Caron, because its primary focus is this question a fact or mixed fact in law about the parties' intentions and expectations. And that was a primary consideration for Justice Binney and Marshall, what were the expectations of the treaty party when they came here? And there's a good reason why this is the case, related to reconciliation, it's because as all the cases have told us, historical treaties are created in very different circumstances than constitutional documents. They are written in by one party in that language and were the worldview very different than an indigenous party. But despite the fact that that's how the text was developed, the meaning of the treaty has to be, has to reflect both parties' intentions. And those intentions are established by the facts that emerge through the trial process. And that is one way in which reconciliation is relevant, even at the interpretation stage. This court has said reconciliation is a mutually respectful relationship between indigenous and non-indigenous people. And a critical factor in any respectful relationship is understanding one another. And in the context of a historical treaty claim, that understanding must be based on the facts established at trial and found by the judge.
26: You acknowledge that those findings of fact cannot overwhelm the language of the treaties, or you say that they can?
25: Well, ultimately, Marshall tells us the bottom line is that the interpretation of the text has to be consistent with the intentions of the parties.
26: But this is the starting point, the text.
25: Well, the project is to interpret the text. Right, and, and I mean, we agree with, with, with Mr. Schachter that the reading of the text actually supports the trial judge's interpretation here. Um, that's, that's our position. But, but the project is to interpret the text. But you ha- the, the text, that interpretation has to be consistent with a common intention. That's the bottom line. That's what Marshall tells us.
6: But doesn't the structure of the Court of Appeals judgment <coughs> itself reflect that there can be deference to findings of historical fact? to the Anishinaabe perspective, that there there is a substratum of the decision that is given deference to, that is a matter of unanimity. So one, and even the majority recognizes that questions of historical fact uh, are entitled to to deference, the perspectives of the parties. But when it comes to the actual interpretive exercise, given that this is a constitutional, uh, these are constitutional rights, as we've heard from some of the interveners, they say they're going to be affected by the court's decision. So we have to have a rule, I guess, is my, my question to you. Don't we have to have a rule that can apply both when the Indigenous community is successful at first instance and when it's unsuccessful at first instance? Because otherwise, it may be a very good rule for your clients, but it won't be for the next Indigenous community that comes before the, the Supreme Court.
25: Well, I, I'm not sure what you're asking me, um, but I'm not sure if you're asking me about the standard of review or about respect for the findings of the, of the trial judge. Because I'm we asking s-
6: both, both.
25: Okay. Well, we say regardless of the standard of review, you have to have respect for those findings with respect to common intention, because that's the only way the treaty can reflect both parties' understanding, and that's that's our point there. And if it's if if you have a problem where there's an extractable question of law, and for example, they don't take seriously the Anishinaabe understanding, like in Delgamuuk. Right, where there, was, where there was a fundamental misapprehension of the project of looking at indigenous evidence or evidence about the indigenous perspective, we'd say that would be an extricable error of law that could be addressed by an appeal court. Um, just in terms of the trial and, and the results of the trial, I, I would like to address Justice Martin's question about this fourth interpretation and where it arose from. There was no fourth interpretation put to the trial judge. The three interpretations that she... Um, outlines uh, in her judgment are the three, 459 to 462. Those were the only ones that were put to her. The placeholder was part of the second interpretation, and that interpretation was that the Her Majesty's Pleases Clause required the crown to increase increase the annuities as revenues became available. It was more about Her Majesty's Graciousness is the mechanism by which um, increases take place. But they were still, they were not discretionary in the sense that they were optional they were mandatory they were to be determined in accordance with the three R's and they were for the benefit of the collective and when we talk about discretion there's two different kinds of discretion here one is sort of the default discretion that arises from the fact that you have a historical treaty that as a trial judge said is sort of lean on details and the parties and the courts have to fill in the blanks, but they have to fill in the blanks in a way that's consistent with both parties' understanding and the overarching principles. It is not a deliberate, that there's another kind of discretion, which where you have a deliberate grant of discretion to one of the parties and says, we all agree, you get to figure this out. That is not what happened here. That, to find that would be completely inconsistent with the trial judge's factual findings. The most that Anishinaabe could have consented to Is the Queen will make the decision in accordance with the three four Rs, because that is what they understood treaty behavior to be So there was no Deliberate grant of discretion there. Thank you very much. Thank you
0: Mr. Schachter
27: Uh, Did you want to give me an extra time to answer that question, then? Go ahead. Yeah, so, uh, look, there was no honourable negotiation for my clients. We were forced to go to Hold on, let me finish. We were forced to go to trial because we were not allowed the $10 billion that the Hurons got. And my friends in stage three said... There's zero obligation for Ontario to pay anything. So that's the context in which we, Robinson Superior plaintiffs, we have to come to court because we're at a stalemate. Now, my friend wanted to say that, yes, we we invited you to the table, but we're not going to get into what was said at the table. Your time uh, starts now. All right. So my first point is that um, yesterday a question was raised about um, how the $10 pre-1850 treaties operated. I'd like to answer that question for you. Um, In stage one, the trial judge had a number of those treaties before her. They're collected in stage one trial exhibit 12. Um, You can look at treaties 20, 24, 27, 27 and a quarter, 27 and a half. The trial judge discussed all of those at paragraphs 101 to 104 and 433 to 436 of her stage one reasons. In brief, each one of them has the way the $10 per capita treaty worked. The annuity entitlement for the collective was calculated on the basis of population at time of treaty, times $10. The value of the treaty territory surrendered was irrelevant. The size of the treaty territory surrendered was irrelevant. But they all had a common feature. And that common feature was not in the Robinson treaties. And the common feature is express and clear language that there is a fixed cap on the obligation. Turning to standard of review. Saying that the interpretation of a treaty is ultimately a question of law does not mean that the facts as found by the judge need to be or can be ignored. I say that if the court accepts the factual findings of the trial judge, which we say did not include any palpable and overriding error, then the ultimate legal interpretation, if that's what it is, you are inexorably driven to the correct interpretation which is the trial judge's interpretation. Bottom line here is, in order to find that the minority was right, in order to find that Ontario was correct, you have to say the common intention of the parties was to cap the collective entitlement to population times $4, and the evidence just did not support that. The evidence was pretty darn clear, and the trial judge spent, I don't know how many was it 88 days or 78 days or how many days it was, she looked through that evidence and she studied the evidence and we have to, and that's what trial courts are for. We have to trust that they did their, she did her job correctly. So if you're going to give any deference to her findings of fact, the legal conclusion in this case follows. Now, in... We are not, I'm not asking the court, by the way, to ignore the written text at all. No, I agree with Ms. Boyce-Parker. We're asking you to interpret the written treaty text having proper regard to the factual findings. Turning to uh, the AG of New Brunswick spoke about declarations being sufficient vindication of treaty rights, but those cases talk about, talking about declarations being an appropriate award are identifying that the right exists. And I, you can look at paragraph 249 of the INU case, uh, 2020 SCC 4. Here, we're concerned about an appropriate remedy for breach of treaty in the past, at least for my, my clients, we are. And declaratory re- relief, I think, sure, it makes sense to guide the parties in the future relationship, but past breaches that have resulted in financial loss deserve a proper, appropriate remedy. Now, the parties in stage three, we joined issue on that, and Ontario argued about why the proper remedy in stage three should only be declaratory relief. And so my answer to you, to go back to the question you asked Ms. Boyce Parker is, you should allow that process to to, to play out because you should be making your decision about what the proper remedy should be, knowing what the facts are on the case that you're making the decision on. You don't know that now. You haven't seen the facts that Justice Hennessy has seen for 68 days in order for her to make a proper decision. Finally, the AG of New Brunswick spoke about reconciliation not being adhered, uh, not being achieved in the courtroom. There's the Deshotel case that, that says negotiating table is not a substitute for the courtroom. You've got Clyde River that was geared towards, um, future forward-looking aspects, not about the past. And the core, co- the core of this case is about a vindication of a breach of the treaty rights for the past 175 years. The existence of Crown discretion in the treaty engagement process is no reason to think that the courts can't quantify losses in the past. In every sweet generous, many-hatted fiduciary case that this court deals with, just because there's discretion doesn't mean there isn't principled, ordered ways to figure out compensation. All right.
28: May I ask a question, please? Sure. Thank you very much. Um, I, I, just as a follow-up, given that this is uh, a very big trial that has happened in stages and stage three is, was designated as the um, uh, quantification, assessment of damage, yes. uh, compensations, uh, is it, do you see any problem with the declaration that um, at this point in time uh, that compensation for treaty breach is available?
27: Well, if you have a compensation that treaty uh, that uh, compensation is available, I would think that that would be the least that you would want to do. What I would like to see, if the court's going to weigh in on what remedy is available, to say, we will decide that issue after we know the facts of a particular case, and we will m- be in a better position to actually decide that issue, but a declaration that uh, uh, but if you want to say all remedies are available depending on the facts of each case, yes, that's, that's what I think is appropriate. All right. Thank you very much.
0: Mr. Griffin.
29: Thank you, Chief Justice.
0: You have also the time before you start your five minutes to answer our question. Thank
29: you. Well, maybe I'll concentrate there for as long as I can, Chief Justice, before I get to the five minutes. Uh, I did want to deal with the question about what the court does with the settlement. Uh, It can't be ignored. It's a matter in the public record. You can only go so far because of settlement privilege, both with respect to the Hurons and with respect to the superiors. We have to be careful. So I can't respond uh, to what Mr. Schechter said in that respect.
28: But But can I ask you, if this was an insurance case, and it's not, um, we would never hear on the liability portion, that there was a settlement on the quantum portion uh, because that would prejudice uh, per- potentially how how the case would be heard and decided. So how is this different?
29: So uh, let me, I have two answers to your question, Justice Martin. The first is that every day in personal injury actions, we settle the damages and fight the liability issue. So that's the way these cases come forward. But this isn't that case.
28: Right. But if, if settlement is told to a juror, um, that's a, a, a basis for a mistrial in, in a civil jury context.
29: But we're not dealing with that. We're dealing with their reality, as arose at the very beginning of the submissions yesterday, uh, that it is a publicly reported resolution. That's far different. Than a confidential settlement that is leaked to a juror uh, in the course of inadvertence during the, the portion of the trial that's been carried on. And, it's and quite what different. Is, what second is the second thing relevance? is I, I think you're in, I'm sorry.
14: What is the relevance?
29: What is the relevance? The relevance is that I've been hearing since the outset of the argument yesterday and today that my client has no regard for the honor of the Crown all the way through, and that that's the motivating exercise. Uh, by which this court should invert interpretation of the treaty language and impose a coercive personal remedy.
3: But is that really incorrect, partly what you just said? Because if I read the record correctly, your arguments were a bit of a moving target as, as you're going through the process.
29: They're not a moving target in this respect, and I don't accept that characterization for a moment but they're not a moving target. I've said to you from the outset that this has to be interpreted, and that's why we're here. And that is what informs whether or not there's a discretion to be exercised. And if you find there is a discretion to be exercised on the proper interpretation, then the remedy flows from that. It doesn't flow the other way around.
3: And then I guess I'll ask the question that we were urged to ask you. What was the position in stage three of the Ontario government with regard to disclosure of documents?
29: I don't know the answer to that question. I've not been in the stage three trial. I can't help you very far in the stage three trial. I can certainly tell you that when you're facing coercive personal remedies of $126 billion, that's quite a different fight and quite a different litigation environment than what I say should flow from how this court deals with the discretion.
3: But you'd agree with me, disclosure is essential. How can a trial judge come to a determination without having all the relevant information in front of her?
29: So we're having the same argument that arose as a result of the uh, disclosure of the settlement that how does a court grapple with things that I can't respond to? And my submission right from the outset was that that stage three trial ought to await the decision of this court. That was found against me here and that was found against my client uh, before the trial judge. So that's what we're dealing with. That wasn't a preference that we had because we say the order is exactly the other way around, that you've got to deal with the interpretation first. So I can't help you any further than that.
0: Can I, I've ask, listened, you, I've, I've can I ask you, Mr.
6: Griffin, about the because this, I understand, is in the public domain and we're We're at a disadvantage other than what we read in the newspapers, but the $10 million settlement is, we heard about it as a proposed settlement. I understand that it is not contingent on the result in this case, that settlement, without trespassing on privilege, is that the case or is it different? It's not
29: contingent on uh, on the decision in this case. It deals with the past, and I think it's incumbent upon counsel to report to this court when the conditions of approval have been met. Not gonna abrogate any confidences, but you deserve to know that, and that's part of our job as counsel to tell you that.
5: My Uh, understanding of the record, and and, and I'm not seeking myself to give evidence, but I'm seeking to accurately reflect the record, uh, is that there was a stay application made to this court, and this court deferred the matter to the trial judge, basically said, you should make the decision. You're correct. And the trial judge made the decision that she did. I won't try to describe it, because I might get it wrong in some respect. Um, so it wasn't so much that we said, no, you're not getting a stay. We said, go ask the trial judge. You're quite accurate, Justice
29: Rowe. I just, this was my first stop, and it wasn't successful.
25: And that the
26: decision was not appealed from the refusal to give you a stay of stage three?
29: From the trial judge?
26: Yeah. No. Okay.
29: A- and that's quintessentially, yeah. to coin a phrase, a discretion.
26: So not appeal, technically, practically uh, speaking, not appealable. From a
29: practical point of view. Yeah. So you take your lumps and you get on with it.
0: Mm. All right, thank you very much. I'm sorry. Okay, so you start, your five minutes starts now.
29: Thank you. So i anticipated it a bit in my little bit that I covered, which is you've got to go back and consider all of these principles against the notion of what it is that we're trying to do. You've got to deal with the interpretation of the treaty. And we set out what flows from that in paragraphs four through six of our uh, responding factum to the interveners because defining the treaty right is not the same thing as looking at Anishinaabe or Crown perspectives that are being brought to bear. And the order and the factors in my respectful submission have been confused. And you have to look at what the treaty right is. It's not an interest in land. The trial judge made specific findings that the lands had been ceded. Paragraphs three, 199, 225, 253, and 341. The right is to an augmentation to be determined by this court as to what it means. It governs the past and will govern the future. And I say in my respectful submission, I was waiting to hear the explanation as to how you reconcile those provisos with the grant. And in my respectful submission, you didn't get it. You certainly got nothing about how the diminution clause was supposed to work, which clearly has to modify the grant, as I say, the four dollar component does. So it makes sense in its language, it does not explain. The submissions we heard by way of response, especially from the superiors, are out of step with the history of the distributions. At paragraphs 289 and 90, the trial judge made specific findings that the Huron Treaty was paid out in goods to each band from 1851 to 1854, starting in 1855, it was paid to individuals in money. The Robinson Superior throughout the 1850s was distributed in cash to the head of each family. So effectively, it was individual distribution all the way through. So please take it for me that that was the nature of it. With respect to the actual language of the treaty, my friends talked about the $10 per head piece. I was going to direct you to the exhibits, Justice Caracasanis, in that respect but you have them now, so I, I needn't go further there. But I stop to say the interpretation that's urged upon you is unworkable. How a Crown discretion was to work on a distribution to individuals where there was a separate annuity, ostensibly controlled by others, makes no sense. How was that integrate and work? They don't explain how it is that should happen. So it supports the conclusion it was a single annuity payable to individuals, and I gave you the Maya Kayash affidavit, it's referred to at uh, paragraph uh, 220 of the majority and a number of places, but what's important is the trial judge never refers to what Maya Kayash actually said. When you get $4 per head per year, I now promise you that the government, which I here represent, will have fulfilled my promise to you. But if your great mother the queen should think it right to give you more, it will only be by her gracious goodness towards you to do so. And the Court of Appeal majority at paragraph 175 doesn't refer to that passage, the minority does. So it brings me essentially to this proposition. That's why the remedy has to follow the interpretation. And with respect to the remedy, it has to reflect the discretion and the need to exercise the discretion if you accept my argument as to the interpretation of the treaty. Isn't that why we're here? And so even the majority at paragraphs 192 to 193, in the context of the Baker decision, outlined the sorts of parameters just as a matter of law that would govern the exercise of a discretion rule of law all sorts of factors we take into consideration i'm not here and i've never been suggesting to you that this is an unfettered discretion
26: so mr griffin if we accept your interpretation and the discretion it means that and you say that the remedy has to reflect that discretion so essentially the only available remedy would be a declaration
29: a declaration now I, I i'm not fighting against the notion justice cote that there are circumstances where there might be Something additional else. remedy but i say the discretion is the thing that has to get dealt with first and that's why the declaration is appropriate and that makes this case not unique from a standard or review point of view but unique from a remedy point of view and that's what has to be taken into consideration it's no south wind south wind was dealing with reserve lands, the fiduciary uh, duty
2: Griffin, was not. Dr- I'm, your, I'm sorry, sorry time sir. Time is. I, the, you draw no distinction on the exercise of discretion between prospective and retrospective
29: rem, rem, uh, remedial order. Not in the sense of how you address the discretion, because if you accept my argument, the court will determine what it means, and therefore we have to have an opportunity to address it to do all of the things that the case law from this court tells us we have to do to reconcile and deal with it. Now, I I accept I'm facing a 150 year history where the Crown, in the broad sense, uh, failed to engage on this. But we're here and we're listening and you're gonna tell us how to approach this. All right. Uh, Your time is up, if you want to conclude. Yes, I do. Uh, So I essentially uh, ask you to, to find that declaration is the appropriate remedy. I've given you paragraphs 100 to 102 of my factum on that and to allow us to engage. One very small point that I should clarify. I was asked by Justice Jamal the numbers uh, of each group. I may have been off a bit, and what I will do is, that may be a little low, Uh, What I will do is consult with my colleagues on the other side of the room and make sure we come to an agreed uh, answer to that question. So I think we have two pieces of homework for you. I suggest that we give you an answer when that settlement is final. And secondly, I have to give you the numbers. And I ask you to consider one last point in respect of our discussion pre five minutes, and it's this. You may want to give some direction to the trial judge while you're under reserve, That is entirely, entirely your discretion, but it's something to consider uh, just to make sure we don't get out of step.
0: Thank you, thank you very much. I'd like to thank counsel for uh, your submissions. The court will uh, take the case under advisement, thank you.